Well, this morning, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews. This is likely the last time I will say that to you in quite some time. We've enjoyed, I've enjoyed preaching 43 sermons through the book of Hebrews, exalting Jesus. As the author says, he is better. He is better. He is better. He keeps comparing him throughout the book. And it's been a joy to be able to work through Hebrews and exalt the person and work of Jesus Christ. Just let me take a moment as you're turning to Hebrews chapter 13 for our sermon today to let you know a little bit of what our preaching plan is for the next few years. Uh, We've changed things up a little bit from our five-year strategic plan in preaching. And so in the next few years, uh, in light of some of the isolation we're experiencing, I think because of the pandemic and uh, just some other ways God has been working in my heart and the heart of our pastoral staff here, next few years will be something like this. Our next book study will be on the the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis. We're going to go the whole way through the book, chapter by chapter. Um, It is an important book. I think it's very important for what it teaches, not only about the beginning of all things, the creation of heaven and earth, but then uh, the uh, author Moses lays out and describes to us some very important covenants upon which the framework of the scriptures are built. And so uh, he gets into, for instance, the Noahic covenant, and he talks as well about a covenant that God makes to Abraham And then he describes some of the patriarchs. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through Genesis and look at some of those foundational covenants so that we can understand the rest of our Bibles. After we're done with Genesis, we're going to go right into Exodus. Guys, you ready for this? We're going to look at Exodus. And that is, one of your horns are beeping, by the way, uh, but we're going to look at Exodus And we're going to look at Exodus because it tells us more about the Mosaic Covenant. It tells us about Moses himself, talks about the giving of the law and the nature of the Old Covenant. Once we're done with Exodus, we're going to go to the New Testament. We're going to go to the Gospel of Luke and learn more about Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're going to take some time going through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the one who inaugurates the New Covenant under which we, uh, as believers of Jesus Christ, are today. When we're done with Luke, we're going to go to Acts, okay? And there we're going to learn about the church, and we're going to learn about how the Holy Spirit uh, empowers the church and indwells us as followers of Jesus Christ so that we can make a dynamic impact for this world. And after we're done with Acts, we're going to go to the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation, and we're going to see how things end. Okay, so you got that? You ready for that? I hope there's some level of uh, excitement about that. Genesis, Exodus, Luke, Acts, Revelation. And after that, I told the pastors, the next thing we do, it's, it's called a sabbatical. That's what I'll need at that point, a sabbatical. I'll probably be drooling and dribbling at that point, having worked through those five books. But uh, looking forward to uh, being able to do this together with you. I, I think it's very important for us to understand the Testaments and how they fit together and the story that they tell. And so uh, that's what we're going to be doing. I hope you're around for most of that or some of that over the course of the next few years here. In the closing of the letter of the book of Hebrews, the author does two things. If you're looking uh, at chapter 13, verses 18 through 21, 
he talks about prayer, gives us some vital information about prayer. In verses 22 through 25, he gives some final instructions. I'm actually not going to do much with verses 22 through 25, but there in those verses, he says that they are to bear with his word of exhortation. I think the author had written, he calls this letter of Hebrews a brief letter, a brief letter. He'd written this brief letter, perhaps to stand in for a, a sermon that they would normally have preached when they'd gathered together there to read this letter. He says, bear with my brief word of exhortation. He explains that uh, Timothy will soon be released from prison and will perhaps join him as he comes and visits the church of uh, the Hebrews here, perhaps in Rome. And then he gives some final greetings from some of their friends who are with him. These friends are from Italy. That's why we think the book is written to some believers in Italy in Rome. But our sermon today, we're going to focus on prayer and what he says in this final conclusion about prayer. Let's imagine for a moment that you were in a heated discussion with someone of a different faith system about prayer. The stakes are very high in this conversation because uh, as uh, you are in this discussion, other people gather around, and they gather around because they're interested in hearing about the way different people pray, people from different faith traditions. And so both of you in this conversation have strong opinions. Your opponent believes that prayer should be directed to Allah or Confucius or some other false god. And he can't understand why you think that is uh, inappropriate. You, however, believe that genuine prayer is offered to the God of creation, the God of the scripture, and that it is only effective as one comes to God through the work of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Perhaps in this heated discussion, it's difficult for you to be so exclusive in the conversation. But then you remember what Jesus says in John chapter 14 when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but how? By me. And so that statement of Jesus steadies you in your position and your resolve. You recognize the importance of this discussion and you are longing for people around you to turn and place their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But then in your discussion, your opponent looks you in the eyes and he asks you a simple question. Here's his question. You ready for it? Imagine scenario. He asks, how much do you actually pray? Anyway, this question takes you completely off balance. You were expecting to defend the exclusivity of praying to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You weren't expecting to have your personal prayer practice challenged. And so in this discussion, you try to wiggle your way out of the question. You try to avoid it completely, but he won't relent. And so he repeats the question, how much do you pray? And so after some delay, you say this. You say, I pray for about one or two minutes a day. <laughs> 
10 minutes a week. That's how you would answer this question if you are the average evangelical Christian in America today. Some here no doubt help that average one or two minutes a day. Some of you might hurt that average. But then your ruthless appoint, uh, opponent knows he has you on the ropes and he pushes one step further and he says this, how much of that time do you pray with other followers of Jesus? Having already felt the, the rush of guilt and embarrassment by your first answer, you decide you need to answer this question honestly as well. And you say this, you say, in a normal week, I don't pray audibly with others in a group or a gathering. According to a recent Barna study entitled Silent and Solo, How Americans Pray, only 2% of Americans had prayed audibly with others in the last three months. Only 2%. The sad reality is that the average evangelical believer should avoid all discussions about the genuineness of prayer until their private prayer practices are genuine themselves. Perhaps prayer is something you know you need to work on. You know that you don't pray how you should or how often you should. I'm going to encourage you today to pay attention. The author of Hebrews ends this powerful letter with a significant text about prayer. Among other things, in the next 20 minutes, you will learn the importance, the power, and the nature of prayer. I've designed uh, my thoughts uh, that I think reflect how the author organizes his thoughts here around two points this morning. Two points. To better understand what he's saying, uh, we first deal with the topic, why should we pray for, other, pray for others, number one, and then secondly, how should we pray for them? Why should we pray for others and how should we pray for them? We start with why. Look in your Bibles at verse 18. It says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Verse 18 and 19, the author asked for prayer for himself and for some others. And here the author in verse 18 gives them, I think, the first reason they should pray for him. And he says there, he says us. You see that in verse 18, pray for us. I think he's describing both himself and perhaps some of the other leaders in the church. You remember verse 17 right before this? He says, obey your leaders and submit to them. I think now he's putting himself in their category. Pray for us, myself as the author, and the, your other leaders in the church. And the reason he gives is because these leaders can confidently say that they have a clear conscience and that they long to do what is honorable or just. Here in this first reason, I think he's saying something like this. 
here's why you can feel comfortable praying for us. We have a clear conscience, and we want to act in honorable ways. Now, as I was looking at verse 18 in my Bible and trying to figure this out, to me it wasn't abundantly clear. It wasn't initially clear, like, why that's a, why that's a reason. Why should this motivate me to pray for someone else? They, they say they have a good conscience. They say they're trying to do what's right. But I think if you think about this for any length of time, it seems that the author's clear conscience gives him the courage to ask others for prayer. And if you know your New Testament Bible, I, th- I don't think this should be surprising to any of you because of what the, the New Testament says about the value of a clear conscience. A clear conscience not only empowers us when we're defending the integrity of our actions. And it's valuable for that, right? You got a clear conscience. You don't think you've done anything wrong. So you are empowered to defend yourself, but a clear conscience also emboldens us to ask others for prayer. And so when our leaders suggest they have a clear conscience and they desire to act honorable in everything, we should pray for them. That's reason number one to pray for others. Pray for your leaders because they want to act honorably. But then you go down in your Bible to verse 19, and we learn much more about why, why we should pray for others in this verse. Here the author wants his readers to pray, he says, in order that he may come to them sooner. Look at verse 19. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, that is to pray, pointing back to pray for us, to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. As we come to this place in the text, I think a a lot of times we just think maybe it's a a rather insignificant verse that only kind of impacts the author and his original readers, but I want to disagree with you if that's your assessment. Here at the front of the verse, verse 19, the author ups his appeal. He says, I urge you more abundantly or earnestly to do this, to pray for me. You see, this is a very important request of his that calls him to restate his request and become more urgent about it. He really wants them to pray for him. And he says that there's a purpose in this so that he can come to them sooner. I think the final two words in verse 19 are important as well. The words, the sooner. Here the author is speaking, I think, comparatively here. It's sooner rather than something else. The author reveals here that their prayers as a congregation will achieve something. They will produce something. Prayers will enable him to come sooner rather than later. I love this little verse. I mean, I love verses 20 and 21. I've got them hanging in my office, and I can go so quickly to those verses. We're going to deal with them in a second. But verse 19 is is so powerful, too, because the author arranges these things almost in like a cause and effect sort of way when he's talking about prayer. The effect is that the author will get to them sooner rather than later. The cause is their prayers. 
That is the difference between later and sooner is prayer. You get that? Your Bible. I think that's a profound point. And I think that the rest of the New Testament portrays this as well. As a matter of fact, there are other texts that talk about prayer in kind of a cause and effect sort of way. Let me, let me point you to some of those. Turn back in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Here Paul is in a predicament in Asia. He says, I think it's in Ephesus. He talks about being under a sentence of death. He may have actually even experienced a death sentence when he was in Ephesus. And I want to read this text to you, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 8. You there in your Bible? 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. God's Word says this. It says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we've experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. Verse 11, you also must help by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. In this text, if you're paying attention to what Paul is saying in the Word, he says that he's counting on two people to deliver him from affliction, the affliction that he faces, this death sentence in Ephesus. First, he knows that when he's delivered, it is a work of God. Look at the middle of verse 9 and verse 10. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us, and he will deliver us again. He knows that when he is delivered from this affliction, it's something God did. But then look down in verse 11. Second, he knows that the Corinthian believers will deliver him, although they're distant from him physically. They will deliver him through their prayers. Look at verse 11. You also must help by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The effect is deliverance from the sentence of death. The cause is the prayers of many. You get that? Let's flip forward a few books in your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. I'll just quickly read another passage to you on this point. I think it's a significant one. Philippians 1 and verse 15. Flip there in your Bibles. Philippians 1 verse 15. Here Paul's in a difficult position in Rome. He's under house arrest in Rome. He's in prison and he has critics there. Look at Philippians 1 verse 15. Paul says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rival, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice 
Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Again, Paul is in his house imprisoned in Rome, and he has critics. Some people were proclaiming Christ with new fervor in order to tighten the shackles on the wrists of the Apostle Paul. That is, their motive as followers of Jesus Christ, because they didn't like Paul, was to preach Jesus with more fervency in the city of Rome so that if they stir up trouble on the outside, it will make things more severe on the inside of Paul's imprisonment. You preach about prayer, this sort of stuff happens. And so then Paul talks about in this text in verse 19 about two different means that God will use to deliver him from his imprisonment in Rome. Number one, through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God will be the means that will deliver Paul from his imprisonment in Rome. But then he adds also to it, through your prayers, through your prayers. The effect, again, is deliverance from a prison cell. The cause, the prayers of the Philippian believers. So go back to Hebrews chapter 13. Let me make this point to you one last time. Back in Hebrews 13, the end of verse 9, the author knows that he can come sooner rather than later as his readers Pray for it. It's the difference between sooner and later. Men and women, may I ask you a few questions here? Do you uplift others in our church family through prayers? It's my desire that God would make Colonial Baptist Church a praying church. We desperately need the prayers of each other. This was not only the difference for the Apostle Paul, it is the difference for us as well. Now, our church staff keeps track of prayer needs in our church family and sends them out every Tuesday or Wednesday. And I want to thank our secretaries for keeping track of all of this. They send it out to our membership through email. Let me ask you, what do you do with that email? Does it remain unread in your email list? Do you delete it soon and quickly without giving much thought to it? It's always a bit sad to me when I talk to members of the church and I, I'm describing to them, I get in a conversation, I start describing to them some physical trial or issue that a brother or sister is going through. It's been on the prayer list for weeks or months and I'm talking to that believer and, and uh, it's new news to them. Now there are perhaps better ways that we can keep you informed of prayer lists, but this is just one way, one way that we try to keep you informed. What do you do with that prayer list? Some of your adult Bible studies groups produce your own prayer lists. 
They produce your own prayer list. They send them out an email. What do you do with that email? Might I encourage you to print those out, save those, put those in your Bible, pray through those things, put them on the fridge, put them wherever you need to. And if you're a Bible study leader of Colonial Baptist Church, may I put this, may I put this assignment on you, this task, this responsibility. If you're a Bible study leader, make prayer a vital part of our times together. Pray for one another. Pray with one another. So why should we pray for others? We should pray because it is effective. It causes effects. It makes the difference. We see in verses 18 and 19. Now picking up the pace a little bit, we look at verses 20 and 21 and we deal with our second topic. How we should pray for others. Verses 20 and 21. Verse Look at verse 20 with me. It says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, when you come to the end of a New Testament letter, you normally come to one of two major theological movements. You either come to a doxology or a benediction. Okay, so when you're coming to the end of these epistles, you look for doxology or benediction. Doxologies are designed by the author to give all the glory to God. Doxologies are literary masterpieces that put the spotlight right on God and his character. There are some powerful doxologies that end letters. I'll read to you just a few of them. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 18. It says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul says, To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In Philippians chapter 4, at the end of that epistle, in verse 20, Paul says, to our, to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Perhaps you know the great doxology that ends Romans chapter 11, this three-chapter section about God and what he's been doing in salvation history. He has uh, fused in the Gentiles. He's not forgotten Israel. And Paul closes this way. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He's got another doxology at the end of Romans chapter 16 when he says, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Perhaps the most magnificent doxology in all the Bible comes in one of the shortest books. Jude 24 and 25 end of Jude's epistle, he says this. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Jude says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be the glory and the majesty and the dominion and the authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Powerful doxologies and letters. It's not for doxologies, though. You're looking for benedictions. What is a benediction? A benediction is a prayer wish on behalf of the writer for his readers. There's some powerful 
benedictions as well in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and may our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. And he continues. The end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a powerful benediction. The end of 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3 and verse 16, he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. As you come to letters and you come to the end, you look for one of these two major theological movements. You with me? Doxologies, to God be the glory forever and ever, amen. Benedictions, may God do something for you. What's so spectacular about this passage, verses 20 and 21, according to my study, I think this is the only place in the entire New Testament where the author combines benediction and doxology together. I think that's one of the reasons why these verses are so well enjoyed. I love these verses. He starts with benediction, now may the God of peace. You see that at the beginning of verse 20? Now may the God of peace. And he ends with doxology. Down at the end of verse 21, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As we come to this extravagant movement, I want to just look at it very quickly and it's three core parts. These parts can be found in the simplified expression, may God equip you. These parts, God equip you, are the most important parts of the benediction. They form the subject, the verb, and the object. Everything else in this doxology, this majestic, benediction revolves around these three words. So we start with the subject. The subject is God. This is where all genuine prayer starts. It goes to him because he is the only living God. All other lowercase g gods, they are inanimate. They're blocks of wood or stone. They are fake. They are imposters. Prayer to any other object, person, or being is counterfeit and powerless. Okay, and so we would do well to remember this. The subject is God. Now, what does the author say about him? He is the God of peace. He's the God. God is the source of peace. He's the source of well-being or wholeness and orderliness. So peace, well-being, and orderliness comes from him. It's sourced in him. He then continues his description of God. He says that this is the God who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Okay, again, this is not just like a quick, unimportant little point here. It is something that we often assume to be true about him, but this is a foundational truth, a pillar upon which the author builds prayer. Use an illustration here for a second. I don't think many of us really appreciate the value of foundations very much. 
we go into the home of, you know, some new home, some magnificent home of someone that we know. We, we go, we love to look at the extravagant library, right, with all of its detail and splendor. We look at it, we just look at all the shelves, we just marvel at the beauty of the library. Or we look at the lavish living room that they've created with the spiraling staircases and expensive furniture. Or we look at the nice bedrooms with, you know, all of us can appreciate nice bedrooms, right? Spacious, warm, comfortable. Not many of us spend time marveling over the foundations. We don't say, hey, hey, buddy, can you show me the crawl space? Man, what a crawl space. This is awesome. And you're down in there looking around, nosing around. Not many of us time, uh, spend much time marveling over foundations, but they're more important than anything else in the building, any of the niceties. So here we just boast for a little while. We admire this foundational pillar of prayer. We pray, the author prays to the one who overcame death on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a powerful description of God. The one who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. Then notice how he describes Jesus here in this text. He says that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. I'm running a little bit behind in the sermon, and I wish that I could go through a, a study, perhaps some other time, where I will go through what the Old Testament scriptures uh, said, what they developed about a shepherd with sheep. Just to overview what the scriptures, I, I think there's a whole theology of shepherds that you could, you could learn as you go through your Old Testament Bible. It starts with Moses in the book of Numbers where he prays that God would give a shepherd a new leader for the people when they go into the promised land. Moses knows he's not going to be there. And so he, he asks God for a leader. He says, a shepherd who will lead and care for the people. God gives Joshua. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, though, one of the, the things you would learn in this theology of shepherds is that normally the shepherds of Israel and Judah were evil. They were wicked. They were self-serving. It's so bad that if you're reading in your Bible in the book of Zechariah, there are four chapters about how God is going to judge the evil shepherd leaders of Judah. But in those same Old Covenant scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, there's a powerful text in the book of Jeremiah where God promises the people of Israel. He says, I am going to send you a good shepherd who will have my heart and who will care for you. And it's in line with that promise in the book of Jeremiah chapter 3 that Jesus comes as the great shepherd of the sheep. Perhaps you know John 10, verses 11 through 15, where Jesus says this himself. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me and I lay down my life for the sheep. Men and women, Jesus is now the great shepherd of the sheep. He leads you. He watches over you. He cares for you now that God has raised him from the dead. The subject of our prayer here gives us confidence since we pray to the God of peace 
the one who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, we go to the one who can help us with anything. And we go to the one who's the shepherd of our soul. That's the subject. We go quickly through the object of prayer. That's you. That's easy, right? May the God of peace equip you. The author cares for those who read his book. And then finally he prays the verb of the prayer, equip. The author prays for God to do something for you. This is the core content of his prayer. He prays that God would equip you. That word means that he would make you complete, that he would prepare you. Just before he says this, he asks God to make them complete. He explains that he will do this, I believe. I think this talks about how he will make us complete. He says he will do this by the blood of the eternal covenant. The eternal covenant is the new covenant established by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is how God makes us complete or perfect, by the blood of Jesus and the new covenant. But then notice as well what he says about how he wants God to equip us. Notice the extent of it. With everything good, it's God to equip us with everything good to fulfill this purpose right after that, that you may do God's will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight for Jesus Christ. I wish that English translations would make something a little bit more clear to us. And so I'll attempt to do that here. There, there are two words in this little phrase, these phrases here that are, uh, there's actually one word repeated twice. And I'll translate a little bit different way here. Looking in the middle of verse 21 there, it says, that you may do his will, doing in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So here the author prays that God would equip us to do God's will, and then he explains that when that happens, it will actually be God doing it in us. Reminds me of Philippians chapter two, perhaps you know this verse. For it is God who works in you, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. This prayer ends with this glorious goal of all of his prayer, that God would receive glory forever and ever. Amen. As we close, we learned a lot about prayer today. Verses 18 and 19 are prayer requests from the author that they would pray for him. And then in verses 20 and 21, he prays for them. We learned we should pray because prayer is powerful. It is effective. It works. It makes the difference between sooner and later for the author. And it makes a difference for us. And when we pray for others, we have learned to pray to the powerful God of well-being and wholeness. The one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead and the one who equips us through the blood of the eternal covenant of Jesus Christ. Men and women, having learned such wonders today about prayer in this text, I ask you, will you pray for others?
Will you pray these kind of benedictions over your family, your children, your spouse? I'll embarrass my wife today. She's not here. She's working in the nursery. Last night I was reading through this sermon with her and she said, I just feel so compelled to learn these benedictions and to pray them nightly over our children. Perhaps God has worked in your life. Will you pray for your family, your spouse in ways like these? And will you pray with others in your Bible study? Because you know prayer makes the difference. Let's pray together. Father, there have been many distractions out here today, but you knew that. (laughs) Music stands flying across the stage. Things on our phone. Noises, sounds. There's so many things that would prevent us from hearing the point of the author of Hebrews. This is an amazing book, an outstanding book. And he closes it with prayer because he believed prayer makes the difference. Father, may Colonial be a praying church. I want to thank you for groups of men and women. I know groups who do gather together and they pray often for our church. I want to thank you for their prayers. But Lord, do this work in all of us. May Colonial be a praying church. May I be a praying pastor praying dad, a praying husband. Lord, thank you for what the author says here. Prayer makes a difference, and I pray that we would portray that through the genuineness of our own prayer practices. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.